We're continuing our look at uh, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, given to us in the account of, uh, of the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. If you don't have them, that's fine. It's inlaid in your bulletin. You can look there. Um, we are jumping from one section, one big section of Scripture into another as we move from chapter 9 into chapter 10. And what I mean by that is this, is that Luke, the chapters 1 through 9, really are primarily seeking to answer the question, who is Jesus? And so all those stories that we've been looking through, they're trying to communicate to us something about Jesus' identity. And as we move into chapter 10, moving through, really through chapter 18, um, Luke is still telling us about who Jesus is, but he's looking to answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And that is what we're looking at this morning. The, the question that we're asking is, what does it look like for those who, are, uh, who look to Jesus with faith, who trust him for, for our salvation, he's the one who justifies us uh, before God the Father, what does it look like for us to follow him? This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me read it to you, and then, uh, and then we'll pray. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed him by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, I'm asking for a clear head, for loving words. Uh, I pray that you would help us as we look at the story that that you gave us, Jesus. I pray that you'd help us to think well about it and what it means to us. And uh, I pray that you would give us the courage to hear, to receive, um, to be convicted, uh, and to and to love you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, Shonda and I received a, a package in the mail, and it had no name on it. No return address, nothing that indicated where it was from. 
And when you're in ministry, little alarm bells go off in your head whenever this happens. Anonymous notes or anonymous packages in any way, you're just like, okay, who's mad at me now, right? So, but it was Christmas, and, uh, and so somebody was giving us an anonymous gift. And uh, we opened it up, and there was a gift for our family and, and a little post-it note that just said, hey, just thank you for your ministry, thinking of your family during this season and, uh, and it was just really sweet. We felt blessed and, and enjoyed. And, uh, and it occurred to us, we suddenly felt a burden to find out who, who gave us this gift. Um, because uh, you, it's very hard to receive gifts without also giving them, right? Like there's a, there is a, uh, an unstated rule as to the transactional nature of Christmas. Like the who you receive gifts from and who you give gifts to are supposed to be the same people. Uh, have you ever been like caught by surprise that moment of panic when somebody when you realize somebody's about to give you a gift and uh, and you realize you don't have anything for them like those are the rules and don't get me wrong I'm not complaining uh, if you ever want to give us an anonymous gift that's fine uh, I'm just saying rules are broken that's all and it's funny to think about the way that transactional uh, the, the the kind of transactional nature of our lives can govern the way we think about all kinds of things. Like who we love and, and who we don't love. Uh, the way we think about weighty issues like justice and mercy, often um, it's, it's, uh, we have this running ledger in our mind about who, uh, who we will extend gestures of kindness to and who we won't. Like we all remember the people that might have done us favors or people we've done favors for. We, we all know which... Friendships might cost a little more than others. Some give a little more than they get. And when this is the case, if, if a transactional nature kind of governs the way we love the people around us, then it becomes really easy for us to be stingy with our love or to budget our love and where it goes and who we extend it to. And when Jesus enters into a conversation with this man and gives us the good, uh, the good parable of, uh, of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is telling us that loving, the love that we are called to give to the world around us operates by an entirely different set of rules. And that's what we're talking about this morning, is what is the love of Jesus that he is calling us to give? This, this story is about love. And so I'm going to talk about it three ways. I want to talk about the law of love. Uh, I want to talk about the actions of love. What does love look like? And then finally, I want to talk about the call of love that Jesus gives to us. That's primarily where the application to this passage is going to land is in that third point. So the law of love, the actions of love, and the call of love. I'm calling it the law of love because this whole, this whole story begins with a discussion with a lawyer. Uh, it's a it's a legal legal conversation, uh, and what we what happens is that there's a legal test. Uh, a, a man who Luke describes as a lawyer is looking to test Jesus. That's what the passage says. And usually, when we think about law, we're talking about civil law. I know we've got some lawyers in the room, and uh, and they interpret the law, they apply it to our lives. In this case, in this world, what Luke is talking about is probably a scribe. And, uh, and those were religious lawyers. God gave the law to, 
to his people in order to guide them in the life that he calls us to. And a religious lawyer was very important because they could discern God's law and apply, interpret it and apply it to the people. And so this lawyer is testing Jesus. And the reason that he's doing that is because Jesus held court with all kinds of people that were notorious for breaking the law. They were sinners. He was always around sinners. And so this lawyer is testing Jesus because he is curious if Jesus might say anything that might abrogate the law or make it obsolete or undermine the authority in the law in some way. And so he asked Jesus the question, and I mean, this is the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? All week long as I've looked at this, I keep thinking about um, eighth grade Bible class. Some of you might have grown up in a private Christian school, but I took Bible class. My, my mother taught there. And uh, there, was a t- there was an exercise the teacher pulled us through, and, it, he, uh, and she asked us to write down a question. If we could ask God any question, uh, what would it be? And a staggering number of us all wrote down, without talking to, to each other, just wrote down the same question. How do I know that I'll be in heaven one day with you? And the lawyer asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's interesting is how Jesus responds to the question. This becomes a whole legal conversation about the law itself. And what Jesus does is he answers a question with a question. Now, that, like if you're ever being tested, if somebody's ever trying to size you up and ask you a question... It, 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 can all, it, can, it can be smart to just, you know, like put it back on them. And that's what Jesus does. He says, um, he says, what does the law say? How do you read it is what he says. And the man answered, what, what I want you to see here is that in, what Jesus is doing is he's actually engaging this man in his own area of expertise. He's, he says, hey, what do you think? You're the lawyer here. And the man answers the question as well as anyone would have. He quotes a summary of the law that you can find in different places of the Bible. You'll see what this man said in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And in another place, Jesus actually also summed up the law in just the way this man did. By loving the Lord your God and by loving your neighbor as yourself. There's there's no controversy here. That's just true. In fact, when you look at the the law God gave the people, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you can break it up into those two categories. There are laws about loving God, not worshiping other gods, right? This is what it looks like to love God. And there are laws about loving your neighbor. It's really simple. Don't steal. Don't, you know, commit adultery. Don't, uh, don't kill. Those are about loving your neighbor. And so Jesus didn't impugn the law. He didn't undermine the authority of the law. He didn't make it obsolete. Uh, He simply affirmed the law to a lawyer. That's probably a safe move. But this man isn't satisfied. He probes deeper. And he asks a question that has to do with the legal scope of these obligations. And what we see here is a remarkable shift. This is where the conversation really pivots. The man asked Jesus, the text says, desiring to justify himself... The man says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And this question really is about who am I obligated to love and who am I not? 
And now this man is, is wondering about how the law applies to his own life. And what I want you to see that happened, this is the remarkable shift, is that the conversation has moved from testing Jesus about how he f- feels about the law to this man's heart being exposed and him wondering how, what his standing underneath the law really is as Jesus reads it. And and I bring this up because this is what the law does. This is what God's law does. When it's it's read as God has given given it to us, it exposes our hearts. Like often when we think about the law, we're thinking about actions. We're thinking about what it's asking us to do or what it's calling us to stop doing. And it's true. It is about actions. But actions flow from where? Right here. And God's law is exposing our hearts and calling us to a deeper love. And so the question he's asking is, how generous does the law require me to be about, about, uh, does, does the law require me to be with our love? And God's law is calling us to a certain generosity. And it's in answering that question that Jesus tells a story that puts teeth on this whole conversation. Because it would be easy to talk about the law. It would be easy to to talk about principles. It would be easy for these two men to size each other up and it have no bearing on real life. And what Jesus does is he he um, he puts real teeth on this conversation by, by telling us a story that grabs our hearts and explains to us what the love that God calls us to actually looks like. These are the actions of love. And the first action of love that you see here is that the Samaritan came near. If you look at verse 33, he says, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. uh, When he saw him, he had compassion. That he went to him. And this is a big deal because he's contrasting what the Samaritan did by drawing near with a priest and a Levite, both who didn't draw near. This is significant. A priest and a Levite were supposed to be models of Jewish piety. They knew the law backwards and forwards. And he's calling out people that know what God is calling them to do, but it has little bearing on their heart. That they pass him by, they skirt the need and feel like they're not obligated to love. And even further, driving this point home, it would have been significant that Jesus used a Samaritan to fill this role. Because a Samaritan was somebody that was supposed to be avoided. If you were a Jew, you came in with, uh, with, certain, um, with certain notions that were well-informed. These were people that you did not spend time around. They were to be avoided. They were... They were repulsive to you in so many ways. And so what Jesus is saying is that love draws near and crosses all kinds of boundaries in order to do so. Boundaries of race. Religious boundaries that have been set up. All kind, whatever you think is a reason that I, there are certain people I love, the kind of love I call you to, draws near and works out the details later. So love draws near, but we also see that, that, love, um, that love requires personal sacrifice. 
Like, I can't think of any more things this Samaritan could have given in order to take care of, uh, of this man that he didn't even know. We see that he had bandages. He put bandages on his wounds. Those bandages were probably provided because he tore his own undergarment in order to create bandages to treat this guy. He provided oil, which would have worked as a soothing lotion for his wounds. And he provided his own wine, which would have disinfected the wounds. The road, the Jericho road that Jesus puts this story on is notorious for just how rough it is. And so this man provides his own pack animal, probably a donkey. And, uh, and so the Samaritan would have had to now walk that road to get to the end. And when he gets to the end, he doesn't dump and run. What he does is he stays the night with him and treats his wounds. It probably would have been dangerous for a Samaritan to show up in a public place like that with a wounded person on their, uh, on their animal. But he stays and he pays the cost and, uh, and, and, and offers him uh, even another night just to, just to stay. And before he leaves... He gives the innkeeper some money, enough money for this man to stay for 20, maybe 25 days at this end in order for him to fully recover from his wounds. This, this, uh, this, this good Samaritan just sacrificed so much of what he had in order to take care of somebody. And here's what's more astounding to me than anything. It looks to us like he did it without any expectation of getting paid back. Sometimes this story tells you more about what it doesn't say than what it does say. And you know what's missing from this grand, generous work of love that this guy, um, this guy gave? Is any expectation of return. Like there's no conversation about like a burnished reputation. There's no bill for repaying the large sacrifice that this man gave. There, there's, uh, there's not even a thank you is noted here. In fact, the way the story is told, it looks like the Samaritan left and never spoke to this wounded man ever again. And, and, and the only point that I'm trying to make is that Jesus tells a story that describes for us what perfect love looks like. This is perfect love. This is uh, drawing near. This is sacrifice. And this is no expectation, freeing the person you love from any expectation that they will pay you back in any way. And when you size all this up and you think about how Jesus is describing the obligations of, uh, uh, that, that God's people are called to, the, the natural question uh, to ask would be how? Like when you look at all of this and you, you start to consider just what it might mean if I were to live out the burden of, of, uh, of love in this way, how in the world could I measure up to loving this way even a little bit? And I just want to try to answer that question, but I think it starts with understanding that we love this way because we have been loved this way. If you, if you believe the story of Jesus Christ, if you look to him with eyes of faith, trusting him with the weight of your life for your salvation, if this is the story that you look to that, that for faith, um, if this is where you draw comfort in this life, then you are looking to a Savior who first drew new, near to you. 
Someone who crossed all kinds of boundaries in order to do it. We believe in Jesus, the divine, became man. We believe that a a sinless man, the pure one, sat with sinners. And when Jesus came near, he sacrificed of himself. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself. It says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The more that we come to wonder at just what Jesus has done for us, the more we will come to love opportunities to extend that love to others. And friends, there is no greater evidence that you are deeply loved, that each of you looking to Jesus in faith are deeply loved and cherished. And there's no greater evidence of that than when you look at Jesus on the cross and you see one who was willing to lay life, lay his life down to give everything up all so that he could win you. And he did it with no expectation that we will ever be able to pay him back the debt he canceled on our behalf. Galatians tells us that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the gospel teaches us that Christ has set us free. He has set you free from having to pay down the debt of sin that we have run up. He has set us free from worrying about the condemnation of the law as it looks at us. He has set us free from ever having to look at the law and kind of qualify it and wonder how we stack up. That Jesus has set us free completely from ever worrying that God the Father looks at us wishing that he had just been able to get more out of that kid. The gospel has set us free. And if the gospel has truly set us free, then, it, then we can begin to entertain the idea of loving our neighbors in the way that Jesus has called us to. Because any other way, then, then, then we're trying to, 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 um, to build up our own merit. Any other way will, will, uh, will give us pride in what we have done. But when we rest... With, uh, with the cherished knowledge of all that Jesus has done for us, then we have the author of love that we can point to. That our acts of love, as stumbling as they may be, are informed by the one who has loved us first. And it's here that we can take a step back and actually look at the story with fresh eyes, saying, what can I do? And, and God calls us to love. Jesus is calling us to love when he asked the question right at the end. He said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this person? The question for us is not who is my neighbor and who isn't. The opportunity before us is who can I become a neighbor to? And so Jesus is calling us to a loving imagination, a loving imagination that thinks with courage and joy about all that we can do, all the people that we might be able to become neighbors to. It is just fascinating to me that Jesus sets this story, answering a question about who is my neighbor and who is not. He tells a story uh, that's set on a road. Now, I'm not an expert, but you don't get on a road thinking you're going to find your neighbors there. 
People don't live on a road. The road is often the last place you might look to find your neighbor. And so one of the things that Jesus is saying is that there's nowhere that you can go where you won't find somebody that you can be a neighbor to. He is calling us to a loving imagination. And just by way of confession to each of you, I, I, the, way, the challenge that this story has had on my own heart all week long is that I have had to come face to face with just how easy it is for me to walk the streets of Birmingham with blinders on. How I can drive around with my head down, walking past people that are in need. And I can justify that by thinking about all the limited resources I might have or the limited time that I have and the obligations I have to the people that I'm trying to serve here or what, like, it is so easy for me to do that, to just walk by. What's the problem? The problem is my limited imagination. And what Jesus is challenging here is is to, to walk and serve and engage the world with a loving imagination, thinking about what could we do? And there are people here who have been here for years, a lot longer than I have, that have told me that the needs that they're seeing just in this area are growing. That there's more people who wrestle with poverty. There are more needs that are popping up just around us. And so there's an opportunity for us, just as Red Mountain Church, to think with imagination and with courage about what it looks like, what it might look like to honor the parable that Jesus gives us And think freely about what it might look like to love our neighbors. It's a loving imagination that he calls us to. He's also calling us to love human dignity. That that when we look at people, what we see is human dignity. And if anybody should be um, well equipped to be able to see dignity in a person, it should be us. Because the Bible teaches us that that, uh, that God created each one of us, man and woman, every person you meet in the image of God and entrusted an intrinsic dignity to each person. And that is regardless of their background, that is regardless of their intelligence or their education or the means by which they grew up in, it's regardless of their gender or their race, it's regardless of if we have anything in common with them at all. It's regardless of the wear and tear on their skin. It's regardless of the wear and tear on their own hearts. That every person we meet carries a human dignity. And the opportunity to see them and move toward is a a call that Jesus is placing on us. The Samaritan looked at a beaten man on the side of the road who was half dead and moved toward him because he saw a human there and looked to meet that need. And so there's this call to love human dignity. And then finally, I I, I just want to say that I see in this passage a call to loving God's will. Because if we're going to give for the sake of others, it is going to force us into places that we probably wouldn't choose for ourselves. And it's going to force us to wonder how much we might love God's will. I don't know anybody in here, including myself, that doesn't have a will for our lives. Like we have ideas in front of us about what shape we want our lives to take. 
We have thoughts and imaginations about what we want for the people that we love. And, and, and if we didn't have that, there'd be a level of irresponsibility, I think, to not just be thinking, uh, dreaming for the future. But Jesus is calling us to love God's will and that we might submit to it, even if it means we have to bend our own will. That there are going to be times where what God is calling us toward might differ from, from where we're going our own selves or where we imagine ourselves going. And we have to want what God wants and submit to what he's calling us to. And for those who, who, uh, who wonder, I want you to know that's a tough call. I, that's, a, that's a tough call. I think that it's hard. But it's a good one. And it's modeled to us in Jesus. And remember the prayer he prayed the night before he went to his own death. He said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of judgment pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That just blows my mind. That there was some shred of will in Jesus that he was willing to bend it because he loved God's will. And he loved what God might accomplish. And he was willing to be used to accomplish the purposes that God had predetermined. And listen, I don't, I, I, I'm not going to pretend to understand God's will all the time. The Bible teaches us all the time that his ways are higher than our ways. That his will can at times be hard to discern. And that's especially true in points of suffering, isn't it? And I don't know why God gives and takes away. And I don't know why some seem to enjoy abundant blessing and some it seems like God might be withholding blessing. I don't know. But I do know this. That in every point of suffering, there is an opportunity for each of us to become a neighbor. And that when one of us in this room is suffering, there's an opportunity for each of us to draw near to them in love and be a neighbor. And when one of us is suffering outside this church, there's an opportunity for each of us to just become a neighbor. Because we are compelled by the love that we enjoy. We can draw near to people in love for them. And every time we do, we are pointing to the author of all love. The one that teaches us what it means to draw near. The one that teaches us what it means to sacrifice for others. And the one that teaches us to be generous. That's the opportunity that Jesus has for us here in this passage. And I think it's the challenge that we need to think, think about. So will you indulge me in that? Will you indulge me in conversations like that as we go, as we go forward? What is God calling us to think about in terms of what does it mean for us to love others in this way? Amen. Let me pray. Father, you are the... uh, You are the author of all love. Jesus, you taught us what it might mean to love. And Holy Spirit, you are committed to each of us in love. And so I pray that you would teach us to be generous with our love. Teach us to love others. And help us to think about what does it mean as God's people to to lean out of this place in love. Earlier, Miles prayed that we might be an outpost of heaven. And so I pray that this would be a place 
that, that you would you would bless us with that. Help us to lean into this call as hard, as challenging as it might be, and give us the joy of serving in this way. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.